back to nationalism. <laughs> nationalism does nothing but teach you how to hate people that you never met. And all of a sudden you take pride in accomplishments you had no part in whatsoever. And you brag about, you know. And the Americans would go, fuck the French. Fuck the French. If we hadn't saved their ass in two world wars, they'd be speaking German right now. You go, oh, was that us? That was us? Was, was that me and you, Tommy? We saved the French? <laughs> Jesus. I know I blacked out a little bit after that fourth shot of Jägermeister last night, but I don't, I don't remember. I know we went through to Wendy's drive-thru. We are going to get one of them fresh set of sandwiches. It looked so alluring on the commercial, but then we ordered it and realized we had no money and we had to ditch out before the second window. And those douchebags in line behind us with the bass music probably got our order and out. We laughed about that, but I don't remember saving the French. Boy, I went through the last 10 calls on my cell phone and there's nothing incoming or outgoing to the French looking for muscle on a project. I checked my pants, there's no mud stains on the knees from where we were garroting krauts in the trenches at Verdun. I think we didn't do anything but watch sports bloopers while we got hammered. I think we should shut the fuck up. one and only Doug Stanhope talking about nationalism in the best way. It's great. I How you doing? <laughs> How you doing tonight, Adam? I'm good. How are you? Good, man. Yeah. Welcome back to the On Liberty podcast. We open with Doug Stanhope because honestly, <laughs> that summarizes. You can go ahead and turn it off now. We're actually done with the podcast at this point. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> summarizes our entire point of the the episode but um i think yeah we want to take uh take a few minutes of your time to sort of um clarify uh our position on nationalism and patriotism because uh i feel like there's a lot of misconstrued um, perspectives or opinions on what it means to be patriotic and what it means to have pride in a country, your country, whatever, and um, how that relates to us and what we are attempting to accomplish with this podcast and then with, with any other forms of activism that we may have taken part in previously and will take part in in the future. Uh, we're here talking about patriotism and nationalism. Um, and I personally would not want to use my military service as a justification or as a, a, a sort of reason to, um, to claim that I'm more patriotic or, or more proud of my country. I use quotes for that than anyone else. Um, because people who serve in the military aren't necessarily always the most patriotic people. Some of them just joined because of college or 
health benefits or financial benefits or to build skills or whatever it is. It's a career move um, or it's a stepping stone to another thing. So participating in the military um, doesn't necessarily mean you're patriotic. And so, but I do think that um, I would consider myself patriotic because I have a vested interest through participation in the political system and through voicing my opinion through whatever avenue I have at my disposal, this podcast being one prime example that um, because like these are symbols and avenues to express interest and to express uh, desire for improvement in a system that is completely out of control and I don't think there's anything more patriotic than giving a shit about the trajectory of the group of people that you are under no obligation of your own uh, bound to by a social contract, by like a philosophical social contract that you have no choice to opt out of. So since I guess really since we're in this, we're kind of all, you know, born into, into a system and Ideally, I would think that we'd want to make the best of it. And the best way to make the best of it is to participate in it and to try and improve it, to try and improve it. And um, I think that far too often in our country, uh, actually, in all honesty, in most countries, there's so much apathy towards the political process. Uh, and that's why a majority of the time, the status quo always reigns supreme and when it doesn't things always tend to get worse rather than better and things get less free rather than more free and your rights are more restricted instead of less restricted as time goes on because you're apathetic to the system you're apathetic to the process and um most people would rather sit at home and watch football or you know uh, do anything else but participate in the political system. So I guess that's kind of my opening statement uh, on kind of what has led us or led me to want to record a podcast like this to where we're talking about what it means to be patriotic um, and the difference of, between patriotism and nationalism and loyalty to your people versus loyalty to government. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, talking about patriotism, I uh, I think this is a, a good topic for us to cover in an episode, one that you name for sure, because a lot of times patriotism is confused with uh, nationalism or some other kind of allegiance to uh, some type of a state or a uh, an authoritarian ideal. And to me, that's actually the opposite of patriotism. Um, so, you know, if you look at some of the dictionary definitions, you can Google and look Wikipedia and different dictionary uh, encyclopedia sources uh, about the origins of what is patriotism. I'd, I've done some of that. And I basically understand patriotism as um, a type of 
feeling of loyalty or or uh, at least feelings of nostalgia and concern uh, about um, either the culture or the uh, country or the, even the nation um, uh, or the people uh, that you come from, that you identify with, that you live among uh, and that type of thing. And <clears throat> so it doesn't have to be um, tied to any specific type of um, political uh, philosophy or bent necessarily. Uh, but for me, my patriotism comes from my belief in uh, the inalienable rights of human beings uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, property rights being part of that. Yeah. So um, my, my patriotism, you know, really has nothing to do uh, like you say, you know, a lot of times I think when people think about autism, they think about uh, the 4th of July and fireworks and the red, white, and blue colors displayed everywhere and uh, jets flying overhead and, um, you know, bomb raids and big guns and warships and, uh, and aircraft carriers and, and all this, you know, and that's kind of what, you know, people think about patriotism, waving the flag and, uh, the whole, the whole shebang with the parades and everything. So, um, that's really, all that stuff is really more of a display of nationalism. And when taken to the extreme, there's a word for that as well called jingoism, mm. uh, which is a type of hyper -nat uh, nationalism. And typically when, um, when we see uh, political movement, uh, come to a point where it becomes jingoistic, it usually is a form of uh, fascism as well, or at least of some uh, that it goes along with. It's usually coupled with at least some type of authoritarianism, uh, uh, a totalitarian state. Yeah. So, so for me, patriotism would actually be going the opposite direction you know, I'm looking to devolve power from the state. I'm, I'm looking to disempower the state and, uh, and empower people. I, I want the people themselves, individual human lives to be empowered, um, to enjoy and thrive, you know, living and enjoying life, but, uh, enjoying the blessings of liberty, being able to live in freedom and make your own free choices. Um, and basically live and let live and, and enjoy your own life. You know, that whole idea of to each his own. Um, so my patriotism doesn't necessarily have so much to do with uh, a geographical location as much as I do love the United States of America. And I've been to almost all of the States at this point. And, you know, I do believe we have a great and beautiful country. Um, but it's not, it's not about that. You know, some people talk about how back in, back in my religious day, we used to talk about how the church is not the walls that we have around us as we sit in the pews and have our worship services and the preacher preaches his sermons. That's not the church. That's not the building. Right. 
Right. We always like to say the church is the people inside. Yeah. The body, the the body of people, that's the church. Yeah. And in some in some ways, people like to say this about government sometimes. They like to say that, well, government is really us. You know, the government is the people, and the people are the government. And um while that can be taken as true in a sense and another sense it's really not true um yeah. there is a, a separate entity you know i i would point out the fact that people can live and exist and like actually occupy spaces as breathing sentient beings w without the presence of the state yeah uh, but the state cannot exist without the people. Right. So in other words, the people don't necessarily need the state. We don't need the government, but the government, the state definitely needs us. Um, again, I think this comes back to the principles of we, the people, uh, retain the authority and the power, uh, in all things as, as the final arbiter, um, and in, in our experiment in self-government, civilian government, uh, any type of gover self-governing that we might think of, of, by, and for the people, however you want to put it. Um, so my idea of patriotism doesn't have to do with waving a particular flag or even standing behind a particular document like the constitution. Um, yeah. As much as, as I do respect the uh, American experiment in constitutional republicanism uh, with uh, democratic uh, uh, mechanisms built in um, and that move that America made to devolve from uh, the power of a monarchy and, and try to disseminate power more back out power to the people. Uh, as much as we've tried to do that, you know, we do know that the Constitution was a, a flawed document from the very beginning, um, most glaringly of problems being the three-fifths compromise, yeah. uh, which obviously was what uh, caused us not to recognize uh, slaves and, and African Americans, you know, people of color as being full citizens of full human beings. They didn't right. have their rights given to them at that point. So, um, you know, I would even go back as far as the Declaration of Independence and say that I feel much more patriotic about uh, as far as a document or tying my patriotism to a document or a revolution or uh, people of, a, of an era or a geography. Um, you know, I would have to go back b before the Articles, uh, the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and go back to the Declaration of Independence, because that's where it all starts. That's where we named what our principles are. Right. We said we believe in that there's a natural right uh, that cannot be revoked, an inherent human right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right. And um, and those principles are what I am patriotic about. Right. Now, to whatever extent the Declaration of Independence 
helped us um, break away from the uh, the tyranny and the chains of our past and make a leap uh, in the direction of human freedom, uh, I'm patriotic about it. Uh, in in the measure that the Constitution may have given us uh, in protecting our inalienable rights, um, specifically, I would say the Bill of Rights is what I'm more patriotic about. Uh, I'm supportive of it, but I'm not supportive of uh, what the Constitutional Republic eventually has become, what it, what it is today. Um, you're really stretching the definitions of all those words to call it a constitutional republic even uh, anymore, really. Yeah. So, um, so I would say the Bill of Rights is really uh, probably one of the founding documents that I, I feel more patriotic about because, uh, and even without the, the rest of the Constitution itself, just those... 10 amendments, what we call the Bill of Rights, I, I see that as the true foundation of American freedom. So, you know, when it comes right down to it, if the American people ever get to a point where we decide that um, we want to use the rights, we want to utilize and call upon the rights that we expressed in the Declaration of Independence, uh, that we know we uh, are affirmed in our right to be able to uh, alter or, and or abolish our government to replace it with new uh, methods of organizing ourselves, uh, uh, that that right still belongs to the people. Yeah. And as long uh, as, long as uh, a method of the people um, uh moving in a direction that gives us a greater uh, enjoyment of our rights and our liberties and our freedoms, then I'm, I'm patriotic uh, for that kind of a movement, um, that kind of a move towards liberty. So I feel like that was, I feel like that was a, a kind of a needlessly drawn out explanation for me, but, but basically that's, that's the idea. Pa patriotism is about first principles. It's a, it's about sticking to our first principles, and uh, uh, and not wavering from those first principles, um, regardless of what governments may come or go over the centuries and over the millennia. Yeah, yeah, I I agree completely. Um, I I wonder if if not now then when will we be at a point as a society that we've had enough with the injustices and the overreaching of um, of government in almost every facet of life that we're at one point we're going to say okay we've we're, we're kind of tired of this we need to start over like if you look at Jefferson and his letters to John Adams, uh, Jefferson thought that every 19 years, the government should be uh, completely, basically erased and start over, right? Um, and now we're pushing, what, 200 and math, math, I don't know, some 
what, 50, almost 50, 250 right now? Yeah, I think 244 or something like that. Yeah, getting close to getting close to a quarter of a millennia. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like um, our government has intentionally deviated so far from the, from um, just those core, the core ideas of what government should be that it would be unrecognizable to anyone who was alive in 1776. I've been thinking about this a lot because of 4th of July and all that stuff. Um, so I'm a little more nostalgic. I get really nostalgic, but a little more focused on um, the founding and the constitution and the declaration of independence and all that stuff, right? And like the federalist papers and all that stuff now than I have been recently. Um, so I'm kind of more honed in on that because the 4th of July is the time when you just kind of like start to like go back to that and look at those documents and you look at those and you say how how far we've come I mean really the biggest catalyst to to all of our I don't know if it's the biggest but really I think one of the biggest catalysts to all our current freedoms that we have and also all the freedoms that we've lost is technology and the um, corporatization of technology and the incorporation of technology into government um, and how it's been used to collect taxes, to surveil, to uh, wage war, to effectively I don't even know if I would say maintain um, society. It's only maintaining maintaining government. That's what it's doing, I guess. But um, I don't know. I kind of like all the issues that we've talked about for the past few weeks with this podcast um, have given like when I think about all the things that government is just objectively, not even, this is even like a matter of opinion right now. It's just objectively um, screwed up and the complete, almost hundred percent lack of care or trying from anyone that holds any political office from uh a county or city level all the way up to the, to the UN even <laughs> like every level of government um, it just seems like like I'm looking at all these issues I'm like am I the only one that's seeing this like I don't know if you ever feel like that it's like am I the only one that's seeing right. this like I want to call right. the bullshit flag and but then of course as soon as someone as soon as you as soon as you become the the dissenter you get demonized because that's kind of, I guess I'm bringing it full circle. If we, if, if, if I become the person who's has dissenting voice, then I'm pegged as unpatriotic. Right. And I don't think I'm unpatriotic. I think I'm extremely patriotic. I think I care enough about the trajectory. Like I said before, the trajectory of the country, the trajectory of society, the trajectory of um, everything from our economy to uh, our military every aspect of, of society, I care enough about it 
to want to change the system to improve how we function um, as humans for the better. I guess if that if any of that makes sense, let me know. If it doesn't, oh well. I think it makes sense, but yeah. So um, you hit on a couple of key things there in, in my mind. You know, so one of the one of the ways I think we can understand this is I, sometimes I've kind of looked uh, at patriotism, uh, especially when you're talking more in the sense of um, fighting against the 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 herd the wave of the herd uh when you when you see what you think is you know the herd about to go off the cliff and you you know you have an interest in um trying to to be a part of the solution you know like that right a, there yeah keep it right keep a train wreck from happening you know uh so one of the ways that i've thought about this before is like uh some people will be familiar with the, the old children's story about the emperor has no clothes. Remember the emperor's clothes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, basically just in a nutshell, people, some people know this story, some people won't. Basically in a nutshell, uh, it's an old fable about an emperor, a king, but the, this emperor, uh, obviously he's powerful and wealthy and he wants new clothes and he hires some tailors to, uh, to make some clothes for him. But what the tailors do is they pretend like they're making clothes and they don't actually do it. And they keep putting him in front of his mirror naked and telling him that they're putting the clothes on him that they're making for him and making him believe, trying to make him believe that, that they're really making these clothes for him. And they've really put these clothes on him. And he really does look how they they say to him that he's looking basically they keep driving up his ego and uh, appealing to his ego instead of actually putting clothes on it. So then the King decides that he's going to go show off, you know, he's, he's completely convinced now, uh, even though he's walking around naked in his head, he's completely convinced that these people have made clothes for him, that he's got them on. And now he's going to show off his new clothes to the public and he has a parade and they go down the street and he's naked, you know, as they go down the street and all the people and nobody, nobody in the big crowd of people uh, will, will dare to point out the obvious truth that the King is naked. Right. And, uh, and everybody, you know, has this vested interest in, well, he's the divine authority or whatever. He's, he's the top enchilada. So, you, know, you can't say anything bad about him. You can't criticize him. You certainly don't want to contradict him or anything like that. But then there's one little boy in the audience that finally speaks up and yells out the truth. And he says, where are his clothes? You know, the emperor is naked. Yeah. So this is kind of the way a framework of how I see patriotism. Patriotism is that one dissenter who's standing in the group and everybody else is doing their zig heils or whatever. And that one person standing there with their arms crossed, not participating, deciding, making a conscious effort to dissent, okay. uh, a, con a conscious effort to say that, no, I'm not just a part of the Borg. I'm not a mindless part of the herd. I'm not a lemming. I'm not a sheep. I'm not going to be 
herded around like cattle, uh, that I have uh, individual sovereignty and, uh, and I am a sentient being with self-ownership. Right. And, uh, and, and, and I believe in my absolute right to life and liberty and uh, the same and equal rights of everybody else to, uh, to that birthright as well. Right. So um, basically, you know, that's my, my idea, again, of uh, patriotism is much more of a, an individualist type of thing. And just like that one right there said uh, on my slideshow, you know, I believe dissent is the highest form of patriotism. And uh, that, um, like this one says, disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. Um, you, you have to be willing, um, if, if you're tr truly a patriot, then you, you have to be willing to swim upstream sometimes and to, yeah. to, uh, to, uh, walk, uh, uh, to walk against the wind sometimes and, uh, to take the path less taken, to take the lonely road, you know, the, the cliches that are coming to my mind that basically sum up to me what is true patriotism. So, you know, there's a flag waving phony patriotism like this, you know, little Republican meme here. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and it, it, and it is, um, uh, just a phony patriotism. You know, it's real easy. I think you touched on this already. It's, it's real easy to wave a flag and post a meme and, uh, and maybe set off a Roman candle in your front yard and say, you know, I'm patriotic. Right. And, you know, I, I guess in a sense, you patriotism, if you want to, um, I, I don't see that as patriotism, uh, as, as much as I would, um, you know, what I think is the really higher ideals of patriotism uh, is that we're, we're, we're ready to fight uphill battles uh, for what we believe is actually right. right. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's, that's really where you get to the true heart of a, of a patriot. Right. I think that um, when, you, when you talked about um, individualism and the um, valuing uh, life, liberty, and property or which John Locke and then yeah, pursuit of happiness as Jefferson rewrote in the declaration that like um, all these ideas of individualism and liberty and freedom and self-determination and self-reliance these are all like uniquely American ideas so really taking ownership over these ideas and taking ownership of yourself is kind of like the most patriotic thing you can do because as soon as you own yourself then you remove uh you remove your reliance on government and you remove government's power over you which is kind of the entire idea of the whole thing um and uh to your to your second point about with with the, the flag waving and the, the sunday the Sunday school football loving um, typical just and I, I don't I don't mean like pick on conservatives because I think 
no matter what your political ideology is, it really is easy to just sit back and eat your steak on the 4th of July and be done with it and then return to a life of complacency, uh, which I don't, so I don't even know how you can be happy with yourself um, in that kind of lifestyle where, um, where you're, you're content with not being heard. You're content with not participating. You're content with the status quo and you never speak up about any issues that are important to you whatsoever. And I know hundreds of, you know, hundreds of people who I've interacted with over the years who are exactly like that. They're absolutely content to just be complacent. And um, if, if what you're pursuing is happiness, which I think philosophically most people in their lives ideally are pursuing happiness, right? Everyone wants to be happy. It's what the declaration says. It's what any psychologist will tell you about the inner workings of human mind. If you, if you want to be happy, why would you not want a system built on ideas that would support you building your own happiness as opposed to a system that oppresses you um, financially, sexually, um, in every single, like, when I say sexually, I'm talking about, I'm alluding to LGBTQ issues, but in every, in every facet of society, there's some version of oppression that keeps you from doing to keep somebody at least maybe not you specifically but somebody from doing exactly what they want to do so if you're somebody who just happens to enjoy cutting hair like that's my thing i like cutting hair well <laughs> you can't really do that without going to school and getting a license and asking permission from the government and getting certified and all this other stuff so there's a ton of roadblocks that keep you simply from cutting hair. I can't even cut your hair and you're fucking bald because <laughs> I'm not licensed. Right? So that's just one example. Any trade that you want to get into requires licensing, requires fees, and that's just for employment. Then you want to talk about, I mean, literally everything that you do requires permission from the government. You want to, you want to, you want to cross the border into Canada or Mexico. Well, you don't have a passport. You don't have permission from the government to leave the country. You know, um, you want to marry someone from another country and God forbid, bring them to your hometown. You're going to need permission from the government. And not only that, there's a quite lengthy process to go through for that. Um, yeah, everything. And at some point, you know, all these things individually may not seem like small, um, may seem small and may seem insignificant. But when you look at things on a larger scale and you see the tentacles of every, of every branch and every sort of um, subsidiary of government reaching into every facet of your life, you start to realize that you really can't get away from this thing. Um, and it becomes like, uh, a mental, you know, it prevents you from being happy, I think. And I think that everyone who has ever had any act, ever, everyone who's ever done anything that relates to paying taxes, to registering a vehicle, to immigrating, anything 
has dealt uh, getting a driver's license. You dealt with the bureaucratic red tape of government. Um, I don't see how you can look at that and just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with this. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Does that make sense? Is there anything I just said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, so I, um, I, I don't know that I have any particular kind of, um, um, you know, ideals that, uh, about government that, that I would be willing to defend. You know, I've talked here before about uh, how I, I am a voluntarist, I'm an abolitionist. So basically, you know, ultimately somebody like me, um, I'm patriotic about liberty to the point that, you know, I think the highest ideal is that society in which um, uh, all human interaction is consensual and voluntary. Uh, I believe, you know, voluntary and consensual interactions to be both the moral and uh, lawful um, uh, uh, epitome of, uh, of virtue and, and righteousness. So, um, so again, for me, things, you know, as, as far as, um, uh, as a state goes, if we're going to have a state and we're going to have a state set up, you know, and talk about like, what do we want it to do? We want it to defend life, liberty, and property. And, you know, as long as it acts within the bounds of doing those things, then it's, uh, it's, it's actually engaged in a legitimate action. Yeah. But anytime it steps out of those bounds of defending life and liberty uh, and property, then now it, it's no longer uh, acting in the interests um, that it's technically supposed to be confined to and actually then becomes a tyrannical uh, force as opposed to a, a force that's protecting us and protecting our freedoms. When it becomes tyrannical, when a, when a government becomes oppressive and it does oppressive things, I think it's the most patriotic person uh, that stands up and says, I want to hold uh, this government accountable. I want to hold the feet to the fire, you know, um, and, uh, um, just like, you know, some people would say that, that we are the church or we are the, the, the government. Some people might even say we are the market in a way, just the same as you can say, we are the government. You could say we are the market. Um, yeah. you know, it depends on what sense you mean it in. And I think the market uh, the market being the people, uh, I think the people and the, the, the market is always looking for um, better, uh, more efficient and more effective ways to deliver uh, the things that we want, the goods and services, the things that we want in our lives. And so again, for me, patriotism isn't so much about what I want the state to do uh, it's certainly not about using the state to make my neighbor do something against their will. Yeah. Uh, 
to me, that's actually when we begin to run afoul of what we're supposed to use it for. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's when the state becomes destructive of life and liberty and property that, that we're most apt uh, and really need, that's when we really need to stand up the most for our ideals. Um, you know, so again, to separate this kind of nationalism and patriotism, uh, you talk about, you know, what if, what if the United States of America, uh, our military, our government declares war on another country, on another state, on another government? Um, you know, the, the idea of patriotism that the government officials, the authorities want us to have is this, uh, you know, this flight towards nationalism in a, in a situation like that. When we, when we go to war every, they want the masses of people to rally to the flag. Right, they want right, us right. to rally around. Yeah. They want us to rally around these nationalist symbols. They want us to rally around our, our, our nations, our colors and our flags, whatever. Want us to rally around these things and the true patriot may be the person that looks around and says, you know, this is really not a good idea for us to go to this war. And so the patriot may very well be the dissenter. All right. So um, I think about this, uh, you know, those of us that have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan as, as service members, and come out against these wars, um, you know, we may have felt patriotic about going in the first place, and we may feel even more patriotic about standing up and trying to speak truth to, to power now uh, after our experiences. So um, instead of supporting the state, like, let me take for an example. While I was uh, living on an international student visa, I was living in Bangkok, going to, going to school there in Thailand. And one of the other um, Thai boxing uh, Muay Thai coaches that I was training with there um, uh, was from Iran. And, you know, it's not very places in the world where a former uh, American soldier and a former uh, Iranian, uh, I don't know if he would call himself a soldier or more militia or exactly, you know, what armed group that he was a part of uh, when he was living in Iran. Um, but, but, you know, we met in Thailand at, at, in Bangkok at school and went to school together and talked about this some and, and both of us were apt to point out to other people that we don't have to hate each other. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an American, a former American soldier. Uh, he's Iranian, a former Iranian soldier. And we, we not only get along, but we train together. We, we get in a ring together and we face, each, face off with each other in mutual consent combat sport and spar with each other. But who wins? And trust That's the question. Each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, like, especially in sparring, those of us who do a lot of um, mixed martial arts, Muay Thai, whatever, you know, I think we have, we tend to have our egos checked quite a bit, Yeah. you know, because uh, if you're training every day, then yeah, there's going to be days that you're going to walk into the gym and every partner that you get uh, paired up with is just not on your level and it's going to show and they're just not going to be able to keep up with you. And you're going to walk out of the gym at the end of your training session that day with a pretty big head because yeah. you know, you, you, you had, you had an awesome training session and, uh, and you just, you kicked its ass and, and, you know, everybody else was kind of following your lead that day. Uh, but then uh, you keep training and you walk into the same gym into the same school. And on another day, somebody half your size and half your weight kicks you in the head twice on both sides. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a, it's an ego check. It's a rude awakening, you know, and that's the way that it comes. So anyway, this, this Iranian, uh, uh, former Iranian soldier and myself were able to, to develop a rapport with each other and were fond of pointing out to people that it's not us that hate each other. Right. We don't have, we don't have a problem with each other at all. In fact, we enjoy training together. It's our governments that have a problem with each other. You know, it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's the authoritarians who have to jockey for power, uh, that have all this, you know, wealth and power at their disposal, uh, and want to manipulate, you know, everything from currencies to governments to to you know markets and everything else with their with their uh power hungry political aspirations yeah. you know those are the people that have beefs with each other right and so typically this has been the same everywhere i've been in the world you know i've been to a lot of different not just states in america but i've been to a lot of different countries and spent, you know, being stationed in different countries and being a student in different countries. And I have found that regardless of whether it's living in Tennessee or Texas or Kentucky or Wisconsin or somewhere like that here in the United States, or whether I'm in the Hindu Kush Corngall uh, province or uh, Kunar province of Afghanistan in the Pesh River Valley or in uh, rural, rural Thailand uh, or the countryside of Italy uh, or Germany or any of these other places that I've spent a fair amount of time that I have so much more in common with the average person than I've had with any politician that I've ever met. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I completely, so, I completely agree. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's almost like, it's, it, you know, it, it really is. It's just kind of natural when you travel and you come to, you know, you meet different people and you come together and you start, you know, sitting down to have dinner together and, and get to know each other and, and uh, ask questions and, and, and talk and, and just get familiar. Um, I think, you know, all around the world, I think people would, especially now as, as somebody who's lived a little bit of time and traveled a little bit, I feel like most of the people all around the world feel like, you know, we should be able to get along together. Like I don't have a beef with, with anybody 
um, um, in another country just because they're from another country. You know, it's like this idea of America goes to war with Russia right. or, uh, you know, Pakistan goes to war with India or China goes to war with some everyone. other country. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whatever, <laughs> right. With everyone. It's, there's, that's no, that's, that's really a misnomer. It's, we're really doing ourselves kind of a disservice to speak in those terms. I think we, we speak in those terms because for brevity's sake, for, for the sake of being able to have a conversation about a subject like war or foreign, uh, foreign relations and foreign policy. But I think we really do ourselves a disservice when we just lump a whole country and we say, well, you know, look at look at what China did. Look at what China did with this coronavirus thing. China lied, yeah. and 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 China didn't tell us the truth about things, and and China didn't handle it correctly, and therefore, you know, we should have some kind of uh, restrictions on China, some kind of uh, uh, you know sanctions tariffs or, or yeah. uh, sanctions, embargoes, or somebody come up with ideas about. But when we say China did that, we're not saying like literally the almost 2 billion people or one and a half billion people, whatever it is right now that lives in China. We're not saying that each and every single one of those people got together and said, you know what? Let's lie to America. Fuck America. You know, we're going to handle this coronavirus thing the way that we want to. And we're, you know, so when we talk about like countries going to war with each other, uh, I think it's really a disservice because you, you know, the average person in the Chinese countryside, I mean, there may very well be people in the Chinese countryside right now. And, and at least in some of the rural areas that still haven't even heard of coronavirus yet. Um, right. There, you know, and there's definitely multitudes, millions of people in China that couldn't give a shit about the, the, the beefs between the Chinese and American governments, as long as it doesn't affect them, you right. know, personally, as long right. as somebody's not dropping a bomb on their village or something like, like, you know, so it's like when I was in Afghanistan and I, I spent 15 months in Afghanistan and I realized, uh, or even when I've been stationed in a European country for a couple years or whatever, I realized, like these people are no really no different than we are in America. You yeah. know, this guy, this guy in Afghanistan, he lives out in the middle of nowhere and he doesn't have much, but you know, what he does have is his little house, his wife and a couple of kids and a goat. And that's really all that guy cares about. He's got like a, a couple of square acres of land, a plot of, work and take care of his family and, and, you know, whatever he does as involvement in the community. And that's who that guy is, you yeah. know, and, and he doesn't really, he doesn't like, he's probably not especially interested in, you know, what's the, uh, what kind of trade relations are going on between Brazil and Mexico right now. Or, or between, you know, his country, whatever that country is, he doesn't really care about what's going on between, uh, between I Italy and Australia. Like, that's just not on his mind, man. You know, like, he's, he's behind a garden hoe. 
He's, you know, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, like a guy here in the United States, he's milking cows, man. He's, you know, he's busy. He's trying to eke out a living for his family. And, and so, and so it would be the same as if people were, you know, to say, Hey, everybody in America is guilty for American foreign policy. Well, you know, in a way, people from around the world might kind of have a bit of a point, you know, I mean, see, to militarism and all that. But, you know, I mean, how much can, responsibility can you actually give, like, the average American who maybe just has a high school education, uh, is part of what we call the working poor class, or the low middle, the lower middle class, you know, people that basically spend 60 plus hours, 80 hours or whatever at work every week and still barely make the bills and don't really have a whole lot of time for much of anything else in their life. Um, I'd never question why they're in the situation to begin with. Yeah. And that happens too, right? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, like, so, so my point is it's kind of a disservice to talk about countries going to war with each other when it very well may be that while, you know, hypothetically, let's say there's a war between the United States and, and uh, uh, let's pick a random country. Uh, let's just say Congo. one that would probably never have <laughs> what? Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> I, I would, well, yeah, the Congo or some shit. I don't know. I mean, Bush started getting interested in Africa, so you know, we and we've restructured sure. there too. So who knows yeah. what might end up well, popping so off is, in Africa? So is China. Yeah, and China too. But let's just say I'm going to pull one out of the hat here. Let's say the United States and Argentina go to war with each other. It's plausible. So basically the idea is just that, you know, we, we talk about the government an awful lot in terms of it absolutely representing 100% of the people and all of their uh, views and values. And it just doesn't. Yeah. So, so again, it, I think it just helps to highlight this idea that, uh, that patriotism uh, can also, and, and to me really is more importantly a, about dissent um and and uh and the fact that you know i don't like to be collectivized yeah. uh yes yes i am an american but that does not mean that i support everything the american government does in fact at this point i don't support most of what the american government does so um uh and i and i think it's incumbent upon people who feel particularly patriotic to try to fix the problems of our domestic government, you know? So um, if you're talking about, you know, patriotism as far as uh, in the sense of a struggle, uh, a fight, it doesn't have to be like a physical fight. It can be like a war or whatever. But when you're talking about the struggle to me, it's much more important that we struggle for freedom in our local, uh, in our more local area, you know, yeah. in your local community, in your, in your, in your, in your, in your uh, subdivision, in your community, in your town, in your state. Um, 
and, and in your own country. And I think considering as much government that we have nowadays, especially, uh, that should be enough to keep all of our hands busy without looking outside of our borders to any kind of uh, uh, threats abroad that we should be so worried about. You know, obviously I, I want to see the, the people of the United States protected uh, and defended from any foreign threats as well. But uh, again, the point being that um, nationalism tends to avert our eyes to foreign threats and right. it seeks it seeks to collectivize us uh, into this group think here in an us versus them mentality against a foreign power. And to me, that's the opposite of uh, the way that a patriot would want to approach um, society and government and organization and and culture and, mili and military uh, endeavors or anything, and defense or anything else, um, that uh, patriotism is, 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 and freedom uh, is much more about let's fix the problems that we have right here. Let's, let's look right here and take care, of, uh, take care of the problems that we've got domestically. And so sometimes that does put us in the position where, you know, Democrats are uh, victims of this all the time when there's a Republican in the White House and a war gets started and everybody uh, rallies around this nationalism and around the Republican president going to war, you know, and then if there's Democrats like an anti-war left and anti-war Democrats that start speaking out against them, then they're automatically uh, branded as unpatriotic. Right, right, right. Now this this goes both ways. There's been Democrats who have uh, in his in our history who have been at war, and had both Republicans and Democrats speaking out against them and anti-war movements as well. Right. Uh, it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. And, and for any of those anybody who listens or watches this podcast, um, I want to make it very clear that I am a libertarian. I reject both the Republican and Democratic parties as inherently part of the problem. Um, I, I, I think we're, uh, we're um, not served well by choosing the lesser of two tyrannies. And that's basically what we've come to in the United States now at this point is we've got the extremes on the left and the right. We've got the Republican and the Democratic parties right now that have extremes that are trying to pull them to these opposite extremes, except that they're only opposite in the old left-right paradigm. Um, they're not really opposite because there's also another part of that spectrum. Uh, if you, if you want to say there's left and right, but there's also up and down. Okay. Right. Okay. Let's let's say there's a spectrum that goes one's vertical, one's horizontal. So on on one axis on one axis of the spectrum you have left and right. On the other axis of the spectrum you have authoritarian versus the opposite end of libertarian, uh, or 
you could say if you want to put it, put it in terms of control versus uh, uh, un, uh, not controlled. All right. right. Free, free. So um, for, for what I think is happening in the United States and our political system right now is that we have extremes in both of our two major political parties. And they can't seem to agree uh, on a lot of the social, the cultural issues, but what they always do seem to be able to uh, agree on is uh, authoritarianism yeah. and authoritarian government and bigger government and more state power and bigger budgets and, and centralizing, always, uh, always gathering and centralizing more and more and more power into that central authority, into that central government. Uh, and really, like I say, the constitutional republic doesn't exist anymore. We're, we really are more of a nationalistic uh, type of country now. Yeah. You know, which I, I would point I would point out the revolutionaries and the founders of our country, when they talked about their country, they weren't talking about a nation. They were talking about like the country around, like we were talking about the, the, the church is not made of the walls. The church is made of the people. Right. Very similarly, the revolutionaries uh, would talk about the, the country in the sense of the, the people that I live among, the, you know, the, uh, the culture and the people that I live among, the people who make up my country. Right. And, uh, and so it really wasn't about a nation or anything like that. So we bring it up to the modern day. And what I'm concerned about right now is that we have extremes on the left and on the right. Uh, but the problem is that neither one of them are, are, are being uh, an adversary from a more freedom-based or let's say libertarian position. Right. They're both moving. They're, they're, le they're on the left and on the right of the spectrum but they're both moving towards authoritarianism. Right. So because they're both moving towards authoritarianism, that means that when we look at the electorate or the citizenry uh, or we, the people as a market, uh, let's put it in terms of, of a market. Yeah. Uh, the Republican and Democrat authoritarianism leaves an opening in the market for people from the opposite end from authoritarianism to have an inroad now. Right. So this is, this is where, again, I've emphasized on this show that libertarians need to step up and lead with our principles and try to show some leadership right now, because we do have an opportunity um, looking at everything for what it is you know, there has been a long history of, uh, uh, of, of truly leftist organizations trying to infiltrate the American experiment and push us towards communism. Right. Communism being, uh, socialism and communism being ideals such as uh, seizing the means of production, uh, the other axiom being from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Now right. we could talk all day about why that stats doesn't work that way. None of this works that way. Right. So, uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum, 
What we also have in the United States right now is very much an authoritarian nationalist president um, who has flirted around an awful lot with extreme right-wing groups um, and, and kind of shown a propensity for a lot of tolerance of white power uh, nationalism and supremacy, white supremacy and things like that. Uh, he has, he's very isolationist. Right. So again, you know, I would point out there's a difference between isolationism and non-interventionism as far as a, a foreign policy goes. Right, right, right. You know, I, uh, they, used to, they used to slander Ron Paul by calling him an isolationist. Right. Um, they were calling him an isolationist because he didn't want militarism all around the globe on behalf of the United States. Uh, but that's not, that's not isolation. That's non-intervention. Uh, Ron Paul very much wanted us to be a free market economy where we trade freely with all countries around the world uh, peacefully. You know, peaceful uh, exchange of, uh, of people with people all around the planet. That's not isolationist. That's, right. that's very much an open, uh, an open society when we talk about free markets all across the globe uh, cooperating with each other and America being part of that system and not using our military to assert ourselves around the world, but rather using um, uh, uh, voluntary economic uh, relationships uh, all around the globe. Right. And the, so, but Donald Trump is an isolationist and we can call him an isolationist because um, he has isolationist policies. You know, he's, he's, um, he's very anti-immigration. That's a, a, a kind of a more of a more, more closed society, more of a closed border type of society. Right. Uh, he's, he's for having tariffs, which can obviously set off trade wars with, with other countries. Uh, other economies around the world. Right. And that's very much an isolationist type of thing. Again, the opposite of non-interventionism. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, Donald Trump also brings along some of these other traits that, that are pretty scary uh, when a country, you know, looks at the possibility of tipping over into uh, like a fascist dictatorship. You know, uh, Donald Trump is very much a demagogue. He he uh, um, he likes to lambast and call names and and rile things up and and use divisive rhetoric and and things like that. And this is, you know, that's kind of that's that's kind of par for the course. For I mean, Donald Trump even admitted that his favorite dictator is the uh, father of fascism, Benito Mussolini, the old infamous Italian dictator that was uh, Hitler's ally and, and uh, one of the people that, that Hitler took uh, his politics and, and uh, built his uh, vision for the Third Reich in Germany on, you know, yeah. some, of, some of Mussolini's ideas. This is who Donald Trump wants to, wants to uh, you know, emulate. call to mind yeah. Yeah, and, and to emulate. I think we broke out again. So, um, you know, after, so 
<clears throat> so Donald Trump wants to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. He wants to deploy uh, federal troops domestically. Um, you know, these these are things that only an authoritarian would actually uh, would actually consider and and you know tell the American people that that he wants to do. So. Um, I am concerned right now that what we have uh, in the United States is there's a lot of people on both sides of the problem um, that are seeing the other side and the danger that the other side represents and that causes them to retreat even further uh, on their own side. Right. And so we've got polarization. We keep the division keeps getting further and it also keeps getting more authoritarian. And at some point it's not going to matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat, it matters not one iota because it's not about whether we have a right wing or a left wing tyranny. What, what happens when, when tyranny really comes together the way it did in Germany, you know, for the Nazis, the way it really comes together is when the left and the right authoritarians get together. You know, it's right. one of the reasons that the Nazis are called the Nazis, that reason they were called the National Socialist Party, regardless of how much you want to say they were or were not socialists, right. or were or were not right wing. You know, people make all these different arguments about whether they were left or the Nazis were left or right or centrist or whatever. The point is, all the authoritarians got together. Okay, it doesn't matter if they're left or right. Eventually, the state, uh, the state itself, the apparatus of the state, much like the United States of America is today, it's this huge apparatus of the state. It's this huge oppressive tyrannical force. And so it really doesn't matter too much uh, whether a Democrat or a, or a Republican captures that power. Either way, it's just too much power for anybody. Right. And so that's why I say as a libertarian, I'm very staunchly against retreating back into uh, these old left and right corners, these old uh, Republican Democrat parties. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us not to retreat into those old tribes and, and let people paint us into corners and, and force us into radical uh, positions that we don't actually believe in or whatever. I think that the majority of Americans are getting sick of being pushed to the extremes. I think most Republicans are probably sick of being called Nazis and fascists. And most Democrats are probably tired of being called socialists and communists. Right. And in some cases, it's actually true. In some cases, the things that they do actually do kind of uh, uh, smell or stink of, of those, of those things, of those right. statisms, authoritarianisms. But I think in, in, in all reality, I think most Americans still uh, retain some notion of really wanting to just kind of be left alone and, and live their own life and make their own choices and, and kind of be free and, uh, and not be ruled by an authoritarian state left or right. So my point is really that I just... <laughs> Go ahead. No, I was going to say, which is why libertarianism is actually <laughs> no. the most patriotic, most American political philosophy you can adopt. 
period. There you go. Summary. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now there's the whole show. Yep. <laughs> we've we've made our point. We've made our point now. <laughs> That's definitely a point that I want. But to yeah. Make. So basically, I just want. I just I just wanted to make it clear. You know, the, the idea is that we can take we we have this unfortunate circumstance of having polarized left and right uh, putting into a, a symbiotic authoritarian oligarchy kind of relationship. But, uh, but what it does do, the, the silver lining in the cloud is that provides an opening for those of us who are staunch adherents to the philosophies of liberty and the fundamental principles of liberty and freedom. It gives us an opening to make a difference. So that's why I say that's, you know, libertarians uh, grab hold and let's, let's take this column and let's charge straight up the middle. Yeah. Uh, because the liber libertarianism has an opening, our philosophy, our ideals, our politics, uh, all these things, we, we have an opening right now. So let's charge, let's, let's raise that battle flag and let's charge forward and, uh, and, and exhibit some libertarian leadership uh, because there is an opening right now and, and Americans do want to hear this. How many people do you think are going to watch these debates between uh, Donald, or how many people won't? How many people won't even watch these debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden because they know it's really kind of a false choice and you know, there's it's not utter much bullshit of a, is what it it's is. It's utter bullshit. There's not yeah. much of a dime's worth of difference between them. Um, you know, I mean, they each have their own problems in their own ways. Joe Biden was one of the authors of the crime bill that's got, so you know, yeah. we've got mass incarceration. The United States is like 5% of the world's population, but we have between 20 and 25% of the world's prison population. And Joe Biden is one of the architects of that. Yeah. So you're going to choose between a fascist tyrant who looks like he's trying to be a dictator, a, a, a military dictator of the United States on the right, or an old status quo, like almost 50 year establishment uh, Joe. That went with it, went along with everything the neocons wanted to do after 9/11, with all the stuff and like you know Joe Biden went along with all that shit. On top of being uh, one of the authors of the crime bill, and and one of the reasons that we have so much mass incarceration and loss of freedom and liberty. Now, for the people who do watch that debate, I mean, how hopeless and helpless does that feel? that you, you're going to be basically given two options on that debate set. Right now, unfortunately, it looks like the Libertarian Party nominee, Joe Jorgensen, is probably not going to be allowed on the debate stage. Right. You know, I wish she was, but as it looks right now, that's probably not going to happen. So as we see it right now, it's probably going to be on that debate stage when people watch it on TV uh, it's it's going to be between Biden and Trump, and that's really no choice at all. Again, it's like the lesser of two tyrannies, uh, the lesser of two terminal illnesses, uh, the lesser of two sexually transmitted diseases, uh, however you want to put it. 
you know it's 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 a false choice yeah. so w- would you rather would you rather vote for right wing tyranny left wing tyranny or would you rather vote for freedom and you know if it comes to the point where we're not even allowed to vote we don't even have a vote anymore uh we're not even you know allowed to try to to make a case for freedom anymore and and they leave us out of the system you know they completely lock any other parties out of the system then what do you do you know because it's it's pointless to try to change the system from the inside we all know that the republican and democratic establishments are both completely bought and paid for um the same corporations and and special interests on both of the parties yeah uh if you don't believe that then you've not been paying attention because uh, since well, at least two, since at least 2008, there's been an insurrection on the Republican side in the form of uh, the Tea Party and the Ron Paul movement and stuff like that, and we were never really able to to make any traction. We, the establishment made sure that the John McCain's and Mitt Romney's uh, and were going to be the ones who who were going to who were going to uh, lead the party. Yeah. You know, and so Trump kind of re- represents somewhat of a populist backlash. Uh, but unfortunately, he's even more right wing and even more authoritarian than the status quo. So that didn't help us any on the right. right. You know, on the left, we've got everything from AOC and and uh, some of the other longtime Democrats that have been there that are also on the extreme and don't really provide an option for us. And so, you know, where, where does that leave us? Where, where, where does that leave the American people? Um, and if I'm forced to choose between those two, and I, I know that, you know, on the left, they had a, an, uh, an insurgent, you know, this last time around, Elizabeth Warren kind of jumping on that bandwagon a little bit, but they weren't able to, to capture uh, control of their party either. Right, so Bernie Sanders and all that. These did I lose you? You cut out on me. I oh, didn't I hear any of what you said. Bernie Sanders and all that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the Republican over the last this is twenty twenty now. And that first, uh, since the bailout in 2008, the bank bailout and that initial backlash, over the last 12 years, what we've seen is a huge backlash on the left and the right. And neither one of those uh, uprisings has really been able to take over the political party of their affiliation. Uh, You know, as insurgent as Tea Party and Occupy and some of these groups were, you know, and in some successes that they did have, they were ultimately not able to unseat the oligarchy. Right. Um, the duopoly of the Republican and Democratic troll. And they were quickly bought up, like they were quickly bought and paid, like all these um, grassroots revolutions were bought and paid for by um, companies and, and uh, lobbyists and people within the establishment. And then it just warped the uh the grassroots idea into an establishment idea and then it just yep. kind of like mike uh mike lee and fucking Rand paul and all these other sort of um uh i guess you can call them tea party 
uh, Republicans, um, maybe with the exception of uh, like Thomas Massey or Justin Amash, but a lot of the other Republicans who are in office now, thanks to the Tea Party, have long since abandoned any sort of um, Tea Party esque or libertarian philosophies. Um, yeah. Mike Lee being prime, Ted Cruz being another prime example of that. But, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, again, again, and I would say, you know, those names that you mentioned in particular, uh, like Ted Cruz, you know, I, I know a little more about than I do Mike Lee, but, you know, obviously know who both of those, uh, those are both important senators. And, um, and yeah, so they came up in the Tea Party movement, but over time were very much, um, you know, kind of started leaning more towards that authoritarian side again and going along with the establishment and yeah, neocon and toe in the line for the status quo and what. So that's why I, I say again, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties are lost causes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, now I am a member of the Libertarian Party and I am advocating for the Libertarian Party and, and for our candidates right now. But I also want to make it abundantly clear that I don't believe any political party is necessarily the answer. Yeah. You know, this is the best answer that I have right now. Right. I can, I cannot, because I believe in freedom, because I believe in inalienable rights. I cannot in good conscience support the Republican party. I cannot in good conscience support the democratic party. Because the Libertarian Party is the party of principle, and it's the same principles that I share, I can, in good conscience, support the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Even if we never win any elections. I, I mean, that is be unfortunate if we didn't win elections, but uh, even if we don't win any elections, you know, like I say, it's not even necessarily the, the best option. You know, it's not the, the answer, but it's, it's one of the be better answers that I have right now is to at least support a party that has principles that, that I'm okay with. Because, I mean, honestly, when it comes right down to it, the Republican and Democratic parties both I object to on moral basis. I mean, right. just on, morally, ethically. Uh, and, 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 and economically, you know, all the other arguments that you can make about how, how, uh, r ridiculous they are. Um, you know, the libertarian party is the party of principle of, of similar principles as mine. So I, it's, it's something that I can support in good conscience and work within the framework of, I mean, uh, it's it's unfortunate that our candidates don't already have more traction, uh, but I think they can get more. Again, right now, I think is one of those opportunities where we can get more traction, and uh, and I think we need to work on that. And you know, like a, a podcast, a series like this that we're doing right now. Um, you know, like I said, I've not done a a project like this since Combat Veterans for Ron Paul back in 2012. Yeah. Uh, but right now, you know, eight years later, I think we're in a position uh, both nationally and globally that it's time for those of us uh, who feel 
like speaking out can be an important thing at times. Uh, right now is one of those times. And I think that's why, you know, it's, it's important for us to have a show like this right now. And it's important for us to do an episode like this where we cover a topic like this and point out to people that you can be completely anti-government. You can be completely and totally opposed to your government and still be patriotic. In fact, you might be one of the most patriotic people who exists if you stand diametrically opposed to a tyrannical government. I completely agree. I think we're going to wrap up here because uh, my food is here. <laughs> <laughs> I have to eat because I'm a growing boy. Um, but my, I guess for to close, uh, thank you for listening to On Liberty. For me, this is about, um, this isn't really so much about politics for me. It's more about um, political philosophy and about um, ideas. So that's kind of the goal here. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to mention, you know, not to, again, on this, on this show, we're not about promoting any particular um, political party, really. Republican versus Democrat. Uh, but I do want to point out that, that both of us are libertarians. We're both veterans. Uh, we both uh, uh, supported the Ron Paul campaign and, uh, yeah. and resonated with a lot of his message. And so, you know, we have used a clip of Ron Paul in another one of our episodes. Uh, I, I do want to say that I love Ron Paul, but he's also still a man. He also still is not perfect and has his own falls, uh, faults and flaws as well, I'm sure. Uh, but I wanted to share this video because I think it just wraps up so much uh, what we're talking about, not only in this episode, but in this uh, limited series podcast. And right before I play it, I just want to plug one more time. I want to say that it's absolutely unacceptable for a president of the United States to domestically deploy federal troops. And uh, the fact that Donald Trump talked about this and, and tweeted about this, and then we had a United States Senator, a sitting Senator, a uh, Republican from Arkansas named Tom Cotton, mm. wrote an op-ed in a national publication wrote an op-ed for the New York Times called Send in the Troops. And between that article and his Twitter feed, he advocated for everything from like the 101st to the 82nd, 10th Mountain, whoever all he named, all these federal uh, brigades that he was talking about wanting to send in to put down the the, uh, insurrection on American soil and talked about this as the same as a foreign battle space and all that. So I, I just, I want to say, and I know this, you know, I want this, this podcast series to stand the test of time. Um, so, you know, mentioning this one thing that's just kind of right here in the here and now, uh, um, you know, for posterity's sake, this may not be important to anybody that might listen to this in the future, but at least it up in, until, yeah, I think so too, but at least up, you know, during this election cycle in 2020, 
I want to say that I think it should be priority number one uh, for the voters when it comes to what we want to try to do in the United States Senate. We need to take out Senator Tom Cotton. We need to make sure that he uh, loses that office. We need to make sure that he never holds another uh, politically elected office, that he's never an official. Uh, after him making that kind of terroristic threat against the American people, that bloodthirsty piece of shit, he should never be elected to anything even like dog catcher. He's, <laughs> he's not qualified to have authority. He's not qualified to have power. Uh, he, he is, he is, he's, he's, he's a, a combat veteran, United States Army infantry combat veteran of the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a fellow combat veteran, I'm going to say, Tom Cotton, if you're watching this, I hope somebody will send this to you. You have desecrated your uniform. You have dishonored your service. You have, you, you, you have uh, uh, offended the American people and you are no longer fit to lead. You're a coward of a person. I don't care what you may or may not have done in the past. You're a piece of garbage. And the American people should never allow you to, uh, to have any kind of power. Now, it so happens. It's a two-way race between a Republican and a Libertarian, uh, and his name is Ricky Harrington. And so I just want to encourage everybody to go look, look up uh, Ricky Harrington, Libertarian candidate for United States Senate in Arkansas 2020. And uh, I, I, if you watch his media, you read his positions on his website or whatever, I know you're going to be uh, impressed with him and with his positions and I want to encourage you to donate to his campaign, to, to support his campaign, to do everything that you can uh, to help us unseat what I consider to be the most dangerous senator in the United States Senate to our freedom right now, Tom Cotton. Let's unseat that son of a bitch. Let's kick that, kick that motherfucker to the curb and uh, let's replace him with a principled libertarian like, uh, like Ricky Harrington. And so that's all I've got to say about that. I'm going to let uh, Adam, if you've got any final words. No, I think we're okay. Let's uh, play the video, shall we? All right. Let's then let's end with these uh, these great words by former congressman from Texas, uh, Ron Paul, on patriotism and the modern state. The accelerated attacks on liberty started quickly after 9-11. Within weeks, the Patriot Act was overwhelmingly passed by Congress. Though the final version was unavailable up to a few hours before the vote, no member had sufficient time to read or understand it. Political fear of not doing something, even something harmful, drove the members of Congress to not question the contents and just voted for it. A little less freedom for a little more perceived safety was considered a fair trade-off. And the majority of Americans applauded. The Patriot Act, though, severely eroded the system of checks and balances by giving the government the power to spy on law-abiding citizens without judicial supervision. The several provisions that undermine the liberties of all Americans include 
sneak and peek searches, a broadened and more vague definition of domestic terrorism, allowing the FBI access to libraries and bookstore records without search warrants or probable cause, easier FBI initiation of wiretaps and searches, as well as roving wiretaps, easier access to information on American citizens' use of the Internet, and easier access to email and financial records of all American citizens. The attack on privacy has not relented over the past six years. The Military Commissions Act is a particularly egregious piece of legislation, and if not repealed, will change America for the worse as the powers unconstitutionally granted to the executive branch are used and abused. This act grants excessive authority to use secretive military commissions outside of places where active hostilities are going on. The Military Commissions Act permits torture, arbitrary detention of American citizens as unlawful enemy combatants at the full discretion of the president and without the right of habeas corpus and warrantless searches by the NSA. It also gives to the president the power to imprison individuals based on secret testimony. Since 9-11, presidential signing statements designating portions of legislation that the president does not intend to follow, though not legal under the Constitution, have enormously multiplied. Unconstitutional executive orders are numerous and mischievous and need to be curtailed. Extraordinary rendition to secret prisons around the world has been widely engaged in, though obviously extra-legal. A growing concern in the post-9-11 environment is the federal government's list of potential terrorists based on secret evidence. Mistakes are made, and sometimes it is virtually impossible to get one's name removed, even though the accused is totally innocent of any wrongdoing. A national ID card is now in the process of being implemented. It's called the Real ID Card and is tied to our Social Security numbers and our state's state driver's license. If Real ID is not stopped, it will become a national driver's license ID for all Americans. We will be required to carry our papers. Some of the least noticed and least discussed changes in the law were the changes made to the Insurrection Act of 1807 and to Posse Comitatus by the Defense Authorization Act of 2007. These changes pose a threat to the survival of our republic by giving the president the power to declare martial law for as little reason as to restore public order. The 1807 Act severely restricted the president in his use of, military, of the military within the United States borders, and the Posse Comitatus Act of 1878 strengthened these restrictions with strict oversight by Congress. The new law allows the president to circumvent the restrictions of both laws. The Insurrection Act has now become the, quote, Enforcement of the Laws to Restore Public Order Act, close quote. This is hardly a title that suggests that the authors cared about or understood the nature of a constitutional republic. Now, martial law can be declared not just for insurrection, but also for natural disasters, public health reasons, terrorist attacks or incidents, or for the vague reason called other conditions. The president can call up the National Guard without congressional approval or the governor's approval and even send these state guard troops into other states. The American Republic is in remnant status. 
The stage is set for our country eventually devolving into a military dictatorship, and few seem to care. These precedent-setting changes in the law are extremely dangerous and will change American jurisprudence forever if not revised. The beneficial results of our revolt against the King's abuses are about to be eliminated, and few members of Congress and few Americans are aware of the seriousness of the situation. Complacency and fear drive our legislation without any serious objection by our elected leaders. Sadly, though, those few who do object to this self-evident trend away from personal liberty and empire building overseas are portrayed as unpatriotic and uncaring. Though welfare and socialism always fails, opponents of them are said to lack compassion. Though opposition to totally unnecessary war should be the only moral position, the rhetoric is twisted to claim that patriots who oppose the war are not supporting the troops. The cliché, support the troops, is incessantly used as a substitute for the unacceptable notion of supporting the policy, no matter how flawed it may be. Unsound policy can never help the troops. Keeping the troops out of harm's way and out of wars unrelated to our national security is the only real way of protecting the troops. With this understanding, just who can claim the title of patriot? Before the war in the Middle East spreads and becomes a world conflict for which we'll be held responsible or the liberties of all Americans become so suppressed we can no longer resist, much has to be done. Time is short, but our course of action should be clear. Resistance to illegal and unconstitutional usurpation of our rights, our rights is required. Each of us must choose which course of action we should take, education, conventional political action, or even peaceful civil disobedience to bring about necessary changes. But let it not be said that we did nothing. Let not those who love the power of the welfare warfare state label the dissenters of authoritarianism as unpatriotic or uncaring. Patriotism is more closely linked to dissent than it is to conformity and a blind desire for safety and security. Understanding the magnificent rewards of a free society makes us unbashful in its promotion. Fully realizing that maximum wealth is created and the greatest chance for peace comes from a society respectful of individual liberty. And Madam Speaker, I yield back the balance of my time.